0: Excellent. Well sooner or later, welcome to today's talk. It's one of the terrible things about our life. Especially when we have meetings and everybody has to come together, we always have to, you know, kind of get there on time. And if you're a monk, it doesn't matter, we'll start later, we'll finish later, or start earlier, finish earlier. It's alright if you're the head monk, I often say the talk won't start without me, so if I'm late, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you have to wait, and it starts when I start. But then sometimes you've got to catch the plane on time and I must say that Singapore Airlines are very strict with the time and some of you may know that, was it last June, I gave a retreat over in. Uh, Sri Lanka and uh, at the end of the retreat, because I'm well known in there, they put me in the the VIP lounge. I should never go there again. This was another place where rich, famous politicians and monks (laughs) go before the flight departs. I was not there plenty of time, and the flight attendants, not the flight attendants, the hostesses. So, oh yeah, got plenty of time. And then when it came to, you know you're supposed to go to the gate. 20 minutes before they close. Oh, 20, they close the gate. 20 minutes before the yes, but at least tw- 10 minutes also. So anyway, I've been flying on Singapore Airlines for so long. When it got to about 25 minutes before the flight, I showed the flight to the hostesses. I better get to the gate now. You know what they told to me? They said to me, they said, Don't worry, Ajahn Brahm. We'll get you there on time. And that really struck me because I should tell other people not to worry. It was the first time <laughs> someone told me not to worry. <laughs> and so I waited a bit longer and they said, Look, I really should get to the gate. They said, we told you, don't worry, you know, you're VIP. VIP we always take to the gate, last of all. So I stopped worrying and trusted. And by the time I did get to the gate, you could see through the window, the air bridge and the aircraft separated. (laughs) So I had the privilege of spending extra time in the luxury of the VIP lounge <laughs> in Singapore, in, uh, Chang- not, in Sri Lankan airport. So because sometimes you have to uh, really be careful with your time. Sometimes you can just let it be and just be late. You have the privilege of being late for my talk, you know, if you don't want to come or you just have to go to the toilet or something comes up, you can always catch up with the talk afterwards, but I don't have that privilege. I cannot be late for my talk. (laughs) I have to be here to give it. But nevertheless, when we're meditating, we don't have to worry so much about time. In fact, not worry at all about time. That's one of the beautiful things about meditation. You can get into that timeless zone, where things just flow, you're not worried about minutes or hours. And hopefully that happens to you in your life as a meditator. Hopefully it happens many times. You go sitting down there and you get a nice peaceful state. You don't worry about time. You haven't got a clue just how many minutes or hours have gone past. When you come out of meditation, you look at the clock and say, the clock must be wrong. I haven't sat that long. But you have. And a great example of that is one retreat which was given in Sydney some years ago. And it was given by a Vietnamese Theravada monk. Now, Forest monks don't just live in Sri Lanka, you've got good forest monks, sorry, not, don't just live in Thailand, really good forest monks in Sri Lanka, in Burma, uh, used to have some really good ones over in Laos. and also. Also, uh, in Vietnam, southern Vietnam was very much Theravada, and in Cambodia. And anyway, this was a Vietnamese Theravada monk, and he started the retreat. You know, usually on a Friday evening, it's supposed to be 7:30, I think, meditation, and then 8 o'clock the first talk. And he was quite well known as a full house. And when he started a meditation, everybody meditated with him. But when it got to the end, end of the meditation session, you know, 8 o'clock, he started at 7.30, the monk just, was just sitting there. He never came out from the meditation. So they waited you know, for a talk, maybe he come out at half past, 9 o'clock, 9.30. He was still meditating there. So all the people who are supposed to be listening to a talk, you know what they did? They're very practical in Vietnam. They all left and went to bed. Left the monk there, just meditating. When they got up in the morning for the morning meditation and morning chanting, he was still sitting there. When it came to breakfast, he was still sitting there. When it came to the morning talk, He was still sitting there. He sat there, apparently, without moving, without going to toilet, without drinking, without eating anything, for 8 days. And when he came out of meditation, the first thing he said was, I apologise, I should have given you talks. I should have uh, uh, inspired you and all the people there said, no. We were inspired, seeing you just sitting there like a Buddha statue, not moving at all, not eating, not drinking, not going to the toilet, just sitting there so still and peaceful. You inspired us, thank you. And he sort of described what it's like, going to these deep meditations and time has no meaning for you anymore. Eight days, eight minutes, when you come out of meditation, you realise, uh-oh, I've missed my lunch, uh-oh, I've missed my flight, (laughs) uh-oh. So that he was right to ask forgiveness because what we do as monks who can meditate, nuns who can meditate, lay people who can meditate, if you have got that depth of meditation, you can get so still, a life to get still, you make a resolution. It's called programming your mindfulness. You do that before you go into the meditation. You say, I must come out uh, by, what is it, uh, Sunday. That's when you're catching your flights? back to Singapore? Saturday. Some, Saturday, some, Saturday. some Saturday, some Sunday. So those of you who are going on Saturday, when you meditate this afternoon, please make the resolution, it's only, was it Wednesday today, I must come out on Saturday, <laughs> otherwise I'll miss my flights. That's what happens, sometimes you go in these deep meditations and you don't know just how long you're sitting for. It's very peaceful, very joyful, but the perception of time vanishes. Other perceptions are still there, the perception of time is not that uh, important anymore to you. And that programming of mindfulness, you can try that tonight. My first meditation teacher taught me this, and I just tried it just as an experiment. I was surprised how well it worked. He said, when you go to bed tonight, you're supposed to get up, I think, in that retreat, 5 o'clock in the morning, you can set your alarm clock to 5 past 5. But when you go to sleep, or before you go to sleep, you tuck yourself in the bed, then you make a resolution, I will wake up at 5 a.m., I will wake up at 5 a.m., I will wake up at 5 a.m. You say that to yourself as simple as possible but as clear as possible three times, paying full attention. Then you forget it. You go to sleep. And those first few mornings I couldn't believe how accurate that was. I'd wake up one minute before or after what my clock said was five AM. No alarm needed. The only reason I set the alarm was to give me a sense of safety and security. If it didn't work, the alarm clock will wake me up. It's a much nicer way of getting up in the morning. You Just tell yourself what time you want to get up. And then you go fast asleep and you wake up pretty much accurately at that time. If you take it seriously, pay full attention, full mindfulness, say it clearly, then the mind will follow. It's like the mind can be well trained that way. So That's also what we do in meditation. If you get really nice meditation but you've got some duty to do, maybe to a family member or to go to work or give a talk or something, that's how you work it, you say, I must come out of meditation at 5.50 to do some chanting. Try it, it works, but it also works on even more important levels. I'm not quite sure what the deepest problem in your meditation is. Maybe it is you start to get peaceful and then you get all these thoughts come up in the mind to disturb you. And you look at those thoughts, what on earth do these thoughts come from? They're not necessary, they're not important, they're not full of insight. How can I stop these? If you try and stop them, while they're just occurring, the meditation, you just destroy the peace of the mind. You start talking, and when you're in deep meditation, of course, you're destroying the uh, the quietness anyway. So what you do, you give yourself uh, that instruction at the beginning of the meditation. There's a few people, they can get the beginnings of a nimitta, and then either they get scared or they do something, they mess around, it's like they get so close and they slip up at the doorstep and can't get in. So what you do, if you try and give yourself instructions while those nimiters are, are just arising, those instructions are far too coarse, it will destroy the quietness of the meditation. You give those instructions at the beginning of your meditation. You tell yourself after you've closed your eyes, you've got your body comfortable, you tell yourself, if a nimitta arises, I will not be afraid. If a nimitta arises, I will not be afraid. If a nimitta arises, I will not be afraid. It's called programming mindfulness. and It's amazing how it works. A nimitta starts to come up and usually your usual response, habitual response, is to get scared or afraid. Then you're just about to get afraid, but your programming interrupts it before it actually disturbs you. And even this instruction of programming mindfulness, I've even uh, given that uh, when you do, as a monk, marriage counselling. I always couldn't figure out, why do people come to a monk for marriage counselling when we've never been married? And I realised the answer was, is because we're cheap. (laughs) We don't charge anything. And sometimes, you know, you get some very good insights and that's one of those insights. As I often say, just a generalisation. You can tell how long a person's been married, or a couple have been married, by how they talk to one another. <laughs> have you ever noticed that some couples they get very critical of each other, you know, the longer they've been married, finding fault, and that's a nice. Thing. They both love each other. They're both really good people, and they come to me for marriage counselling or something, and I say. How come you don't get on together? I get on with both of you. And you can't get on together. Because they're so always really nice people. But somehow or other we get into this bad habit of picking out the faults in one another. And sometimes that bad habit, I've seen it with people, I said, look, you know, just it comes out of my mouth. I start criticizing my partner, and then she criticizes me, and then I criticize her back. And that's the only way we talk to one another, it's just habitual. And say so there is a solution to that, it's programming your mindfulness. When the partner, the problem is not there, when you're away from them, you think of them and you say to yourself, I will only say kind words to my partner. I would only say kind words to my partner. I would only say kind words to my partner. Something like that. You have to repeat that many times, many days. And then you find what happens. You go home and your partner has done something stupid. And you know, your habitual response will be How old are you now? Don't you know just how to you know, lock the door or to drive the car? Instead of criticizing, you know, you're about to do that, but the programming of your mindfulness kicks in. Yeah, no one's perfect. You know, you, you bumped the car and got a scratch in it. We can fix that. Whatever it is, you say nice words instead of always habitual criticizing one another. And I learned that by learning how to programming my mindfulness during meditation. And also, I don't know the relationships you have with family members, with friends, me with monks or Anagarikas in the back, sitting there. You know all my tricks now, Ryan, so please share them. And that is, you have someone you're having a hard time with and they come up to you in the kitchen and they say, what are you going to Jhana Grove for? I've been working here all the time. And you say, It makes me a kinder person, so I can help you even more. You say something nice, instead of something which is criticising back. You program yourself to do that, and it's amazing, it works. You can change your habitual patterns by giving yourself instructions, clear, mindful when you're saying these instructions, peaceful and allow it to soak in. The one mistake which people make with programming your mindfulness is when you give too many instructions. You sit down and to meditate. Now I will watch the breath and if animeter comes up, this is what I'll do. But if it doesn't come up, this is what I'll do. And if I get really restless, this is what I'll do. And if I get too tired, this is what I'll do. (laughs) Your poor mind gets just so confused what it needs to do. Just one instruction at a time. And number two, don't keep repeating it, three times is enough. The simile which I give is that when you uh, leave this retreat to go to the airport, you go in a taxi and you tell the taxi driver, I've just been on a meditation retreat, so please turn off the radio. And I don't need to talk to you and also don't drive too fast. And also don't swerve around the corners too fast. I've got a very sensitive body. And I've been practicing compassion. So if any other driver wants to come in front of us, please let them come in. Don't always just cut them off. And look out for kangaroos on the path. We don't want (laughs) to. And you haven't reached the front gate yet. (laughs) And that's when the taxi driver says, Get out. (laughs) I know how to drive the taxi. You just sit in the back and shut up. And that's kind of what your mind does. One instruction, or maybe two at the most is fine, but don't overdo it, otherwise it doesn't work. Again, always treat your mind like a friend. If you treat the mind like a friend, your mind becomes so compliant. It gives simple instructions and it likes doing them. So that's a little bit about programming mindfulness, but also about how to make sure that you know, you don't sit too long, you may be surprised. Uh, okay, Ajahn Brahm, that might be for these meditators who can sit for hours, but as for me, after 40 minutes, I know it's time to come out because my ne- knees are exploding in pain, my back hurts, everything hurts. And when people would ask me, said, What to do if you have those experiences of everything hurting in your body? You know that, and in your mind as well, being really restless. Because somebody came up to me once at one of the uh, retreats for, uh, please, an urgent interview. Why? said, I was sitting there, I had an attack of all the hindrances, all at once. And I thought that was really weird. You can have restlessness and drowsiness at the same time, said yes. <laughs> and craving a new will, yes, and doubt, yes, a whole lot and a few more which the Buddha never knew about. <coughs> the attack of all the hindrances. It's like, <laughs> when you meditate you feel you're going crazy. So much stuff. The interesting part of this, and I should should tell that story afterwards, the attack of all the hindrances, what do you do? What's the the way of overcoming that? And I call this, it is based on one of the famous Buddhist stories, I call it the Nalagiri strategy. The story of Nalagiri, if you remember it from uh, the stories you've heard of the Buddhist temples, even though the Buddha was very kind, compassionate and wise, still whenever you get into leadership positions, no matter how wise and good you are, there's always jealousy. And so it was the Buddha's cousin wanted to take over. And uh, he, uh, Buddha wouldn't let him. It's about time he retired. If Devadatta was alive today, he can take over my job. It's very tiring. But nevertheless, um, so the Buddha refused. So n- n- uh, Devadatta was trying to hatch plots you know, to kill the Buddha so he could take over. And one of those plots was there was this big elephant in the town of Rajagaha. You know, now we've got a town called Rajgir, but Rajgir was moved out from where the original Rajagaha was. And in the town of Rajagaha, the big elephant had, uh, I think, Devadatta, it could have been Devadatta or King Ajatasattu, gave lots of alcohol to the elephant. And so the elephant was like drunk, and then set it charging down the street, And these were narrow roads that just built for horse carts, chariots, and not for like the multi-lane highways you see in Singapore. This was narrow streets and the Buddha was coming along one of those streets on alms round with the other monks, just gently holding his bowl, receiving alms food, giving blessing, a symbol of calm, peace, and compassion. In the opposite direction, this big elephant, charging along, lost any mindfulness he had, drunk, destructive, smashing everything in its way, treading, knocking over trees. And these two forces were going to meet, a symbol of deep peace and compassion, and a symbol of anger, violence, destruction coming in the opposite direction. And all the villagers or the townspeople of Rajaka were running for their lives to try and escape being injured or killed by Nalagiri. And the Buddha was just walking calmly towards Nalagiri. And all the villagers told the monks, get out of the way, hide otherwise you may be injured. And All the monks, they jumped over the the walls, went in the houses, hid behind the trees, except for the Buddha and his faithful attendant, Ananda. And as the, the elephant came closer, within sight, Ananda, stood in front of the Buddha, let the elephant take me, I will protect my master. Was that inspiring? He was willing to sacrifice his life for his teacher. And At this point in the story, I always say, would any of you do that for me? (laughs) (laughs) That, That was a sign that Ananda didn't have enough faith in his teacher. So the Buddha just pushed him aside gently, Ananda, I will take care of this. So just the Buddha, Buddha, no one else, walking towards slowly, calmly, peacefully, towards this violent elephant. Did any of you ever see that movie, High Noon? That was a classic, western movie when I was a kid. I forget who the uh, film star was, was it Cary Grant or something? But Anyway, he was the good guy and this bad guy was gonna kill him. (laughs) So they're walking down down the the main road of this western town, all the people watching through the windows but making sure they were out of gunshot range because they didn't want to get killed for a, a showdown one of them was gonna die. They were going closer and closer and closer and closer together. It's like high nude uh, Rajagaha. (laughs) The Buddha versus the elephant. Who would survive? Now the Buddha, I've got lots of, obviously, immense confidence in the Buddha and you also read about some of those psychic powers he had. Even some of those stories I rejected when I was a young Buddhist, more of a scientist than a Buddhist, about walking those seven steps and putting his hand up saying I'm number one in the world. I thought, how can you do that as a kid? But I have told you stories, real stories, that can happen. So the Buddha could have very easily grab Nalagiri by the trunk, swirled him around his head three times and then throw him over the Ganges River which is about 300 kilometers away. That'd be a simple thing to do. Buddha was that strong, quick. What did the Buddha do? He never used violence to restrain a wild elephant who was drunk. Instead, he did something like uh, thinking or saying, Dear Nalagiri, whatever you do to me, you can kill me, squash me under your feet, you can lift me up in your trunk and smash me against the wall. Whatever you do Nalagiri, please always remember the door of my heart will always be open to you. It's what we call not just loving kindness, unconditional loving kindness. Whatever you do, even killing me, I will always forgive you. Now I can say that, it may have some meaning to you, but when the Buddha says that, that's enormous power. You know it's true. And then what happened? The Nadagiri stopped, put his trunk down and the Buddha stroked his trunk. There Nadagiri, there Nadagiri. So if you ever come across a serial killer in a shopping mall in Singapore. <laughs> maybe that might be going a bit far. But <laughs> Would it be? There's so many other stories. I remember this story of this um, Hindu. He was a Hindu guru uh, in New York City. He was walking back late from one of his talks, you know, from one of the rough areas of New York. And as he was walking along the street, these hoodlums came up. Give us your money, Mac, I think they called him. He said I'm terribly sorry I do not have any money. Don't give us that. Give us your wallet. I do not have any money. I'm a Hindu sage. A Hindu what? The way he thought and this you know the, this character was in line with being a Hindu sage. He really was one. He said I never carry any money. And then they all calmed down. These were these hoodlums who would knife you or kill you. And they said, I don't have any money. And then they were so impressed that they actually at the end they said, I'm sorry sir, have a nice night. And the very fact they said so <laughs> to anybody. That was in the New York Times newspapers the day after. Amazing. That when you're a real thing, you become like invulnerable. My story. Do you want to hear my story? Because <laughs> sometimes you've got no. T- well, I don't know, sometimes I'm crazy. I push my luck many times. Is that what I'm doing? I'm not sure. But when we were doing our grand opening ceremony of Dharma Center, I was in charge of ordering the marquee, chairs, and all that stuff, you know, for our visiting guests. And I remember when at opening, I suggested, "Let's invite some VIPs. Let's invite the governor of Western Australia. His name was Sir Gordon Reid. And those who know Western Australia, that's where we have the Reid Highway here." named after him. There's nothing wrong with just asking and he actually came. <laughs> so amazing, we got the, the governor coming, wow. So anyway, I made sure to you know, invite some really, have some good tents, marquees and some very nice chairs and also a dozen VIP chairs, you know, with nice upholstery. And I was told by our treasurer, you can get the very best. Don't worry about the costs. It's not every weekend we have the governor coming. We want to make a good impression. So I found a higher company in the suburb of Netherlands. That's another really rich part of Perth. So I said, what's happening? I need the very best. I said, yeah, we'll get it it for you, no problem. It's a bit more expensive than usual, but not that much. And so when the tent came and the chairs came, I was helping somebody else while they, they delivered all those things. And after it was all delivered, I checked. The tent was filthy. But we could fix that. If something is wrong, you don't just complain. You think, well... What to do next? All you needed was the hoses out and to hose it down. The chairs. The chairs were all filthy too. It must have been in some sort of country show in Australia with lots of red mud everywhere. So we just got our volunteers with cloths to wipe them down, to clean them. But the VIP chairs, you couldn't fix that problem. Of those 12 VIP chairs, there was not one of those chairs had legs the same length. They wobbled. And I thought, Look, what would happen? They wobbled a lot, not just a tiny bit. What would happen if the governor or his wife fell over during the ceremony? That would really be embarrassing. So, what I did, I Got to the phone as fast as possible. Called the hire company. It was a Friday afternoon. Late. I said, Look, I just looked at these delivery, especially the VIP chairs, so unusable. And the legs aren't the same length. We got the governor coming tomorrow. Help. And she said she was very nice. She's the owner of this little firm. I'm terribly sorry, there must be some mistake. I'll change them straight away great. And so I hung up. What I didn't realize, that she doesn't change them. All the workers on a Friday afternoon had already knocked off and they went to their usual place they go to at the end of work on a Friday, the pub. So she went into the pub, they told me, saying, the Buddhists, they want their chairs changed. And these were people who already had knocked off work, were already into their drinking. They were not happy. So when the, the truck, the lorry, you know, came the second time with the new chairs, many of you know Nolamara Temple. They, to, actually, to access it, you go down Constant Street, then you turn right into uh, Nansen Way. So the truck had turned into Nansen Way. It was still going quite fast. And one of the men in the truck jumped out. It was still going fast. And came running towards us. And his hand was clenched. Where's the bloke in charge? I want to see the bloke in charge. He was really angry. He reminded me of (laughs) Nalakiri. He was also quite drunk. (laughs) He'd been sent back to work on a Friday evening. He was not happy. Who was the bloke in charge? I walked up to him and said, I am the bloke in charge. And he had his fist right in front of me. His eyes were wide and red. You know like those, they call them yuckers, in the the suttas? They got these big red eyes. and He reminded me of one of them. I want the bloke in charge. And, because his face was right in front of mine, you couldn't avoid it. I could smell the alcohol in his breath. I had to breathe too, so I breathed in more alcohol that evening than I've ever done before. <laughs> it wasn't that much, but you could smell it. It's really strong. I'm the broken charge. And it fits as far from my nose. Interesting thing, I had all my helpers and supporters. They stopped whatever they were doing. Not to help me, but to watch. <laughs> Thank you, friends. <laughs> that often happens. I don't know what a psychology is. I just want to see they're more interested, how's this going to turn out? <laughs> the bloking charge. And it's a training I've had for years and years and years in Thailand before and in meditation. You don't get smart and smug, you don't say anything, you don't smile, you just stand there, peaceful and calm. It's an amazing thing what you can do, because he couldn't do anything, he was stuck too. Because to have a fight, to have an argument, it has to be, I don't know a better word, it has to have foreplay first of all. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you, and who else? Me and my monks, me and my gang of workers. <laughs> the threats escalating, and eventually until the fists fly. So I was just standing there, peaceful. Because you were standing there, peaceful, not doing anything, just you're not even spreading love in kindness, but just being peaceful. He, he could not do anything. It was a strange experience, but I knew I had him in my complete control, total power. Just by doing nothing, by not being afraid. And in that time, the truck parked and one of the other workers, the real boss, came out. He put his hand on the worker's shoulders, say, come on, let's unload the the, um, the chairs. And I said, yeah, I'll come and give you a hand. And We walked together, no fists. Th- uh, no punches were thrown, no arguments. A very lucky monk to be able to do that, <laughs> but it worked. And that's an amazing thing what you can do. One of the other, well I'm into it, I, can't, I don't know, I sometimes have a plan what I'm going to talk about, but I never keep the plans. don't know why I even bothered to make the plans. One of the other stories which I, the monks like hearing you know, when I was young, there was not much Buddhism which I could uh, go to or see, but there was one TV show. I think on one of the channels. You know, while I was a school teacher, I think, and that was Kung Fu. I think with the actor was David Carradine or something. But I used to watch that, and my fellow teachers at school. I was a teacher at this time. I said, oh, it's a great program. And one of them said, you know, quite uh, fairly, if that's a Buddhist monk, why is there so much violence? (laughs) He had a point. And I said, it's because that's the only way that TV shows sell. Someone once told me there was a photograph of this actress in... uh, in one of the big TV shows, I think, Sex and the City. What's her name? One of, the, one of the film stars there. Sorry? No, Sarah Jessica, Sarah Jessica Parker, that's it. Sarah Jessica Parker was in a coffee shop, someone photographed her, reading Opening the Door of Your Heart, my book. She was like a closet Buddhist. And so I thought, wow, I'm sure she must like that book. It's a very inspiring book. And I thought, what's going to happen next? I'm probably going to get an invitation to do a cameo exper- uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a cameo appearance on Sex and the City. Should I accept being a Buddhist monk? <laughs> and so I thought, if she does send me a letter inviting me onto Sex and the City, we'd have to change the name. No sex in the monastery, <laughs> <laughs> and of course no invitation came. <laughs> okay. But anyway, the violent um, one about uh, Kung Fu. I never did any martial arts when I was young, but you know, you saw it on the TV. So on this one occasion, visiting my mother in London, and going to give a talk in the Sri Lankan we have in Chiswick in the evening. That's the area where I grew up. So I know that so well. It's nice exercise in the evening. But some of those um, housing estates had actually grown much more rough than when I used to live in that area. Most of them became what they call no-go areas for the police. And I was walking down one of the streets on the way to Chiswick, past one of those big housing estates. And as I was walking down the road, some of these gang members, young kids, no, 13, 14, 15, 16, I forget the age, about that age, they were congregating, meeting one another, growing in numbers just looking for something to do for their evening. And they saw me coming towards them, bald head, brown robes. So I must say, they weren't totally stupid, they knew who I was. So they started chanting, Buddha, 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 looking at me with his violent, threatening eyes. And as I go, go closer. The frequency of the chant got higher and louder. Buddha, 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 Buddha. They were trying to intimidate me. I am rebellious, that's gonna get me into big trouble one day if it already hasn't. Buddha, 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 I was not gonna be scared. So I walked straight towards them, just one monk. Okay, it's about a dozen hoodlums. Buddha, 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 Buddha. And as I got closer, that's when I raised my hands. In a Kung Fu pose. (laughs) What I thought was a Kung Fu pose, I know nothing about Kung Fu, just what I remembered from the TV. (laughs) I actually did this, absolutely stupid. (laughs) But... I did a kung fu pose and I carried on walking, Buddha, 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 Buddha. And as I got close enough, they just parted. and They let me right through. It must have been a better imitation of kung fu than I thought. <laughs> 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 what it kind of teaches you is that if you've got a good kind mind, you do become kind of invulnerable. People don't want to hurt you or attack you. Anyway. Back to the Nalagiri strategy, why do I even mention that? Is because sometimes we have all these hindrances come at once, a lot of problems in meditation. You can't sit, you can't walk, you lay down, you can't go to sleep, Ah, your mind's going crazy. So what do you do? Just like Nalagiri, hindrances. The door of my heart is open to you. You can make me crazy, you can kill me, you can give me no peace at all for the whole rest of my life. Mind, the door of my heart, is always open to you. See what happens. It's illogical, but it's incredibly powerful. The key story, which I was going to say earlier, but I put off until now, of the Buddha was Uh, the story of the anger-eating monster. The anger-eating monster story goes like this. You may know anger-eating monsters at work (laughs) or at home. This particular story, there was a lady, a nice lady, who happened to be the empress of this um, country. She was also a good Buddhist. So she went to the temple one evening, the, the BF in Lavender Road, and after, <laughs> after the evening talk, she went back home, and she found that, a monster, this demon, this big, angry, violent, huge, weird-looking being, had come into her palace and all the guards, security, police, everyone who's supposed to be guarding the palace, was so scared and frightened that this monster it was much bigger than them. They didn't try and protect the palace. They hid behind the flower pots. They went into the cupboards to hide and they let this monster go right into the main room of the palace and sit on the throne of the empress. And for some of the guards, that was a bit too much, going too far. And they said to this monster, get out of here, you don't belong, this is our empress's chair, you'll be in big trouble, she'll be back soon from the temple, get out. And at every unkind word, and the unkind deed or unkind thought, the monster grew an inch bigger, grew more violent. The words coming out of his mouth were even worse, and even the smell coming from his body got worse. And that just made him more upset. Look, get out, or we'll carve your butt out you know, with our, our swords. You know, We've been well trained for this. Get out now. the monster kept on growing bigger and bigger, angrier and angrier, uglier and uglier, smellier and smellier. And sometimes I ask people, because I haven't seen movies for a while, you know, what was the most scary monster in any movie? I know that some people, I haven't seen this, Alien? Was monster in Alien scary? (coughs) Or like the shark in Jaws? What's the most angry, what's the most dangerous monster you've ever seen? Me? (laughs) 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 Now, say that, alien. And this monster was a hundred times scarier than any monster which Steven Spielberg could. Is he still in business? Yeah. Oh, he is, okay. (laughs) That any any producer in Hollywood could concoct. Really ugly. And the words coming out of this, this monster's mouth, oh, that would just make, you know, anybody cringe. It was worse than you'd hear in a, in a pub in Glasgow on a Saturday night. I've got nothing against Glaswegians, so it just came into my mind. <laughs> and the smell coming off his body. There were maggots on his body, and even the maggots got sick and threw up. (laughs) They couldn't stand the stench. (laughs) And that was when the Empress came in and saw this huge, ugly, stinky monster on her chair, her throne. Remember, she'd just been to the temple, to the Buddhist fellowship in uh, Lavender Road. <laughs> Actually, it's not open yet, is it? No, it's only a story. Don't worry about the details. <laughs> 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 so, what did the Empress do? The reason why she was the boss, not because she was the strongest, because she was the wisest. She knew exactly what to do. She saw that frightening, violent, disgusting monster and said, welcome. Thank you for dropping in. Why have you waited so long to pay me a visit? Has anyone got you a cup of tea yet? We have many types of tea in this temple. We have green tea, we have Earl Grey, we have Dilma, even with condensed milk, if you like some condensed milk, Mr Monster. <laughs> you like some biscuits with it? How about some sandwiches? I don't know if you like uh, Mama noodles, but I can get some of that for you if you wish. Somebody suggested a pizza. I'm not sure if you have this in Singapore, but in Australia, they have monster sized pizzas so that will be suitable for you. So someone rang out for a pizza and they were serious. It wasn't just playing games, they changed their attitude to one of kindness, in line with the empress. A couple of the soldiers came up and said, would you like a foot massage? You know how rare it is for a monster to get a foot massage? <laughs> in fact, he has such big feet, they had to call in some helpers, had about 10 people give him a foot massage. And then also a back massage. This monster had just an enormous head. You can imagine it always has sore shoulders. So a few people gave him a, a nice a neck massage or a shoulder massage. It was really lovely and the monster would always say, just a little bit over there, oh yeah, oh that's nice. <laughs> and they were so kind to this monster and every kind act, kind word or kind thought, the monster grew an inch smaller, less ugly, less offensive in his speech and even the smell started to improve. So everybody was giving so much kindness to this monster. The monster soon got to the size when he first came into the palace. They kept on being kind. Until the monster got so small that one more act of kindness before even the pizza came pizza boy came in with the delivery. The monster got so small, one more act of kindness, and the monster vanished completely away. And that's the base on a story in the suttas, in the Yakat Samyutta the anger-eating monster. When I saw that, I thought, that's amazing psychology. And of course, in the original story, they didn't have any pizzas, <laughs> they didn't have a choice of tea. There's many things I add, but the, the essence of the story it was still the same. You give anger and it gets bigger and more violent and, more, and worse. You give kindness and it gets smaller until it disappears, that's no problem. So the attack of all the hindrances, you're really upset, you're getting angry, nothing's working. Say to your mind, thank you for coming to visit me. Sloth and torpor, thank you for coming into my mind. Restlessness, all these stupid ideas. Oh, I don't think I judge you too much. Stupid ideas, if you want to come in, you can. Be kind to them. Imagine just all those silly fantasies, just stroking, their fantasy, their fantasy, like Nala is trunk. You can come in if you want. You don't have to, but if you want, I won't throw you out. I won't get angry at you. Use these kind responses and you'll find all those hindrances will get weaker and smaller until they disappear. One of the things I'm going to add now, because I wanted to but I didn't have time before, when you try to let go of the past and future. One important method is first of all, be kind to the past. and Be kind to the future. What I mean is I don't know who the actors were in this play we call Life and Our Past Events. You're kind to them, whoever it was who treated you so badly. Now they've got their problems and defilements as well. They were doing it because of cause and effect. And maybe they're going to reap the sad benefits of that. It's not as punishment, but just as cause and effect. And the, even you, you may have not done the best thing, but you did what you thought was the best, you were trying the, hard, the, the hardest to be a good person, it just didn't work out, you made some poor choices, but we do make poor choices. So when you're kind to the past, it's more forgiving. In My own story of my father, you know, before he died, I would always want to know about his father, my paternal grandfather. My dad would never talk about his paternal, his father, my paternal grandfather. Eventually, because I pestered my dad so much, my father told me about him. And the first thing he said, and my father never usually swore, not certainly in front of his children, but this time he said, my father, your grandfather was a bastard. A terrible thing to say about your own dad, but then he explained these were the, in the years of the depression you know in Liverpool, that's where my father was from, and he said his father was a plumber. when he could get work after work, he would go to the pub, get drunk. when he'd come home, he said he'd take off his belt and he'd beat any kid who just happened to be there. Many times my own dad was the end of that belt, just because he couldn't run away fast enough. My father said, even though that hurt, that wasn't as painful as then seeing his father use the belt on his mother. He was domestic abuse, really big time. And the worst thing was, my father couldn't do anything. He was just a small kid. There's no one to complain to. But every time he saw that, he made a a resolution. He said, if ever I survive this, if ever I manage to grow up, if ever I manage to fall in love and get married, if ever I have kids, I will never spank them. Or beat them at all. He never could. That's a weird thing. I never knew why, but sometimes my brother and I, he was older brother, would have a fight. and My dad would come into the room with a slipper and he just would walk out of the room again. He couldn't hit us. I didn't understand why. It brought back all these painful memories of what had happened to him and how that abuse of children turned to abuse of the wife, and he just couldn't take that anymore. So he's one of the kindest fathers you could imagine. I think you do choose, sometimes choose your parents. I think I chose well, <laughs> getting a dad like that. we didn't live long enough. It was long enough, but didn't live longer. But Nevertheless, that You can see that was a different way to react to abuse. Learn from it, grow from it, become a better human being as a result. So anyway, there we go, talking too much anyway. I never actually, (sighs) okay, I'm going to do this this afternoon during the um, Sutta class. I wanted to actually talk about breath meditation. (laughs) <laughs> never even got close. But I did talk about some of the hindrances and most, the most important one was when it's really strong, no matter if it's strong or weak, whatever it is, welcome the hindrances in. Monster, the door of my heart is open to you. Respond to them with kindness. And it's so easy, the past just vanishes, it's easy to let go of, it's not so heavy, not so solid, not so important for you anymore. Same with the future, with kindness. What's gonna happen to you when you go back to Singapore? Be kind to the future. There you are, future. It doesn't matter. If that happens, that's fine. I know how to cope. When you're kind to the future, you find even the future turns out much better than you ever expect. It's a weird thing. You can try it. And that way you can let go of past and future, restlessness. Ill will, everything tends to get weak and vanish. If you're angry at the past, it's impossible to let go of. You're kind to it. Thank you for teaching me an important lesson in life. Okay, and that helps with the meditation. If it doesn't, never mind. You can ask for your money back from your teacher. I don't get anything anyway, <laughs> just so you can't get anything back. You can ask, I suppose, for the tea back. Yeah, get get all the tea you offered me. I'll give it back to you. Okay, enough. Sadhu, sadu, sadu.